Okay, and here we are. So we have some breaking news um, today, super breaking news. Um, there are protests taking place in Cuba right now. Uh, people are protesting basically over economic issues, over food shortages and shortages of medical supplies. And this is happening right as they're going through a um, major spike in, in COVID cases. The United States has no right, no desire, and no intention to impose our form of government on anyone else. No democracy can survive when its public life, its public goods are so privatized and militarized and individualized. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. So we tell a handful of billionaires who become phenomenally richer, yeah, you're going to have to pay more. I know that living in the United States, we have a tendency to just think, oh, COVID's over and right. everything's opening back up. But for a lot of these countries, especially, um, you know, countries like Cuba, um, they're still very much, you know, in in pandemic mode. Um, and you're seeing these protests really erupt over, you know, not having enough vaccines, not having um, enough food, um, they're protesting um, economic austerity. And the way that this is being portrayed in Western media and by the White House is, oh, they're protesting against communism. They're right. protesting against the communist regime of Cuba. Um, this is a statement from Joseph R. Biden Jr. from just a few <laughs> minutes ago. Uh, we stand with the Cuban people and their call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. Yeah, so, it's interesting because I feel like the reason that people don't like socialism so much, especially like why there's such strong pushback against it in this country is because like there's such a strong association with socialism slash communism and authoritarianism so like what's really going on in cuba like is there like an authoritarian communist regime or is that just like the way that the western media is presenting it so i think you can really look at this in two different ways you can look at the cuban regime and you can look at you know authoritarian things that they have done but in my opinion you can't you can't look at that, at, le at least honestly, without at first looking at what the U.S. has done, where we've had an embargo on them for, for decades. Um, mm -hmm. If you go back to the Obama years, one, one of the things I think that, I, that was one of Obama's big accomplishments was normalizing relationships with, or normalizing our relationship with, uh, with Cuba yeah. and lifting the embargo and lifting some of the sanctions. Uh, that we had placed on them. Um, and it helped them out economically when we did so. Uh, when Trump came into office, though, he instituted 240 new sanctions on Cuba. Wow. Um, that, that were previously lifted. So, and that's the thing, like, if you look at how, how the media has start, had started talking about these protests, it was, mm -hmm. oh, they're they're protesting food shortages. They're protesting 
medical supply shortages. They're protesting vaccine shortages. Um, all of those, you know, are directly tied to those sanctions. It was the same mm. thing with Iran when we were sanctioning food and medicine going into that country. Right. And then they had shortages of food and medical supplies. So, I mean, you can talk. You, I mean, I, there there is plenty to criticize when when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the Cuban government and you know crackdowns on on free speech and things of that nature. But you know, one of the things I always say with the U.S. is we're responsible for what we do, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. When we institute sanctions and do an embargo on them, we're responsible for that, you know, and we can't pretend like this is this is the Cuban people resisting communism or resisting authoritarianism when we're the ones instituting this embargo and these sanctions that are crippling them. And for Joe Biden, I mean, these are things that he could. He could I mean, he could lift these sanctions with with the swipe of a pen. And he was in the, um, what's the room where it's like him and all the admin officials um, sitting at the long table. I know, I know there's a name for that. The situation room. Yeah, Uh, I I think so. I I don't know if it's the situation room, but there was a video of him. I saw on Twitter earlier where he was talking about this and he was talking about, oh, we, you know, we stand with the Cuban people's, um, you know, commitment against um, this authoritarian regime. And I'm just like thinking in the back of my head, like, oh, he's talked about the U.S., isn't he? But of course he's not. So, yeah, um, if I were Joe Biden, I would I would lift the sanctions. I would lift the embargo and I would try to help Cuba out economically, whether it's with food, whether it's with vaccines. But the fact of the matter is, you know, what we really want in Cuba is we want our corporations there. We want to control their oil. Right. Um, we've wanted that, you know, really ever since the 1960s, ever mm-hmm. since they threw us out. Um, and it's just it's just a shame that like the discourse that I think we're going to see for the next few days is or, or however long these protests go on is, oh, they're resisting communism. They're resisting communism. No, they're resisting the economic fallout of, of sanctions and an embargo that's been placed on them. Um, by the U.S. Right. And I mean, it goes back to like even the 60s, like this entire idea that we have propagated that like communism is bad and we need to stand with the countries that are resisting communism. And like we are still like so afraid of, you know, this alternate form of government that we, you know, still continue to push this media narrative that like look at these countries that are against communism when in reality, like all of the problems that they have, like can be traced back to us foreign policy. And like, again, you know, one of the things to bring her up, you know, on yet another episode or nothing left, but Marianne Williamson was saying during her campaign, like what we need to do with these countries that are suffering economically, that are experiencing food shortages. I mean, that's been going on in Venezuela too, for a long time, mutual aid, Like, if we want to be the world police, if we want to have such a hand in other countries' affairs and have such a role when it comes to, you know, how things are going in, you know, these these other nations, it should be in terms of, like, economic support rather than sort of, like, punishing them with, you know, trade restrictions and things of that nature. Yeah, for yeah, for sure. It's like 
it's like the cold war all over again. <laughs> and it is, it's insane because like, um, if you go back and look at some of the previous leaders of, of Cuba, like there's a guy named, um, there's a guy named by the name of Fulgencio Batista. And he was one of the leaders before Castro Castro ruled for about 40 years. Um, Batista ruled for about four years. Um, and Batista has like four times as many kills as Castro does under wow. his belt. And you never hear about him. You never hear about, oh, this is the result of authoritarianism. Look at yeah. all the deaths, deaths that happened as a result of authoritarianism. And the reason you don't hear about it is because he was backed by the U.S. Right. He let us come in and control their oil. And, you know, he let our corporations come in and set up shop there. And when Castro came in with the revolution and, you know, again, this is not a defense of, of Castro. This is not a defense of, of the Cuban government. But, you know, we, I just think we, we have to give context to these things. Yeah. Then it was all of this propaganda about, oh, my gosh, can, can you believe this? Can you believe that? Despite the fact that Cuba has made um, insane strides in um, literacy in the area of healthcare, and that's under the embargo, that's under the sanctions. So these things never get talked about, honestly. And if they did, if they did, there's this article from Reuters from, from about three months ago, Cuban stage caravan to protest U.S. trade embargo and sanctions. So this was in Havana, hundreds of Cubans basically protesting the U.S. trade embargo and sanctions specifically. Now those protests have, have heightened just amidst the pandemic and amidst this recent spike in COVID cases. But you didn't hear anything about that because it was, they were like explicitly saying, Hey, this is over the trade embargo and this is over sanctions. So it's only when, Oh, it's sort of directed at the government. It's sort of, it's sort of a, a, a mixed bag of everything, you know, Oh, they're, they're protesting communism. Right. Exactly. And again, it just goes back to that like narrative, like, and I remember um, there was a time we were canvassing for Bernie, me and like a couple pals. We were going door to door talking about Bernie, who, you know, is a self-described uh, democratic socialist. And, you know, this woman comes up to us and she's like, you kids need to read up on communism. You know, you need to read up on like how dangerous it is and stuff. And it's it's just really a shame because like we've pushed this narrative for so long that like any type of socialism, you know, any type of um government that's set up in a way that isn't capitalist is inherently dangerous and inherently authoritarian. And it's really interesting because like there needs to be a distinction made, I feel like, between like, you know, authoritarian communism where you have one person or, you know, even like an oligarchical situation, like several people in charge of distributing the wealth versus like a democratic socialism, which is like what we talk about most leftists i think um when we talk about socialism like there's there's different types of things like it's not all one or the other yeah that reminds me too of uh, during the debates i don't know if it was in 2016 or 2020 i feel like it was in 2016 though but bernie had praised the cuban literacy like success yeah about the fact that they like drastically in, in improved literacy in the span of a few years from where it was previously um and the media just like walk like shit all over him for that oh yeah and it's like okay that's 
that's one thing. And they were like, oh, he, he's defending Castro. He's, you know, he's defending authoritarianism. Um, but again, like something like universal literacy, something like universal healthcare, you know, they don't want that. Corporate media, the capitalist class, they don't want that. So they're going to just lump it in with authoritarianism. And it really is a shame because Bernie is just a standard social Democrat, like mm-hmm. Norwegian style, Denmark style social social democracy. I mean, even, even Canada, they have universal health care up there. And it just it seems like so many people in America have fallen into this mindset where like, oh, the profit motive and capitalism, that's just that's just the default. Like it just has to yeah. be that way. Absolutely. And- well, because that's how we teach our kids, right? Like we teach them like capitalism good, like, and you know, it comes from these foundational ideas that like you work for what you have, but then what we leave out with that model is like, you also work for what your boss accumulates in mass quantities. So it's kind exactly. of like this, you know, American ethic that has survived forever, which has morphed only to uh, you know, allow the ruling class to continue raking in the wealth. Right. At the expense of, of everybody else. Um, Noam Chomsky makes a good point about this too. When he talks about, um, he talks about like the structure of, of corporations and basically how they work and how they operate and the hierarchies that are associated with them. And um, he, he essentially calls them little dictatorships, like little Ooh. tyrannies, because, yeah, because you're essentially pigeonholed to what your boss tells you, what your boss says. Um, you're put in this environment where, you know, you don't want to object or you don't want to give any, anyone a hard time because that could put your work in jeopardy. Yeah. And he refers to it as, as basically little tyranny. Just the, the fact that the fact that it's not the government doesn't make it tyrannical, you know? Mm. And I think we could apply that model to, you know, wall street banks, health insurance companies, any other corporations that um, take advantage of people. Um, Like the actions that those companies do can be tyrannical. It doesn't, it's not, that's not a word that should be exclusively, exclusively associated with, with governments. And, you know, to anyone who thinks it should be, I would just ask, like, you know, are you really free if you don't have health care or if you right. can go bankrupt as, as a result of medical bills? Are the, what is it, like 45 million people who average like 40 grand in student loan debt across the U.S. Mm-hmm. and they can't file bankruptcy on it. They can't get a loan. They can't get a mortgage because of it. You know, they can garnish your wages if you don't pay it yeah. um I like is that is that freedom is that is that really free so i think i think we really need to one of the things that american propaganda has been really good at is is associating freedom with just anything anti-government you know mm-hmm. so like oh you go to work and you get paid a shit wage and your boss doesn't appreciate you and that's freedom and you, <laughs> and you have no benefits yeah that's freedom and i think we really need to reframe it in a way where we say that's oppression yeah but also like no real freedom is having health care real freedom is having time off real freedom is so you know things like self-reported happiness it reminds me of fdr's second bill of rights which unfortunately never 
never came to never came to being but it was things like you know a, a good job a, a good wage health care child care like all all these other things that that we usually talk about on, on a regular basis and his his proposal was like hey these are things that should be rights because they're kind of fundamental to you know feeling fulfilled and feeling full and feeling happy and being successful in the world absolutely so, yeah i think we need there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in that realm as well yeah and the other thing that's been going on too is it sounds like we i've heard i've seen like news headlines and stuff that we're pulling out of afghanistan yeah so we are um officially withdrawing from afghanistan under trump he had um he had set the withdrawal the withdrawal um of you of u.s troops from afghanistan um to may that's when um he wanted to start doing it biden when he came in i think i think his thinking was like okay i'm not against this but you know this guy's kind of a lunatic so let's let's reevaluate and look at it and he pushed it to um september which is coming up and as a result, we are now pulling troops out. Wow. So the United States Armed Forces are scheduled to be fully withdrawn from Afghanistan by August 31st, 2021. No kidding. Well, I wonder what has prompted them to do this now, you know, because for years, you know, and we even did an episode, you know, several weeks back where we said, like, we're still in Afghanistan. You know, it's been 20 years. Uh, I wonder what now is prompting this to happen i wonder if there is truly like a cohesive exit strategy quote unquote because that has been like the sort of referendum like the reason that we haven't been able to do it is like well it would leave a power vacuum you know it would um it would leave isis in power and we can't have that so i wonder like what has changed um i don't know if you can speak to that it's interesting. There's a video of Biden, uh, Biden giving an interview where he's asked this specific question. Like, do you think that the U.S. bears any responsibility if, you know, a power vacuum allows, you know, the Taliban to, to resurge in, in a way that they haven't already? Right. Um, well, and some other terrorist keep in organization. Mind. Yeah, absolutely. Because in, in that Afghanistan episode that we did, and I would encourage you all to go back and listen to that, like there is like documented evidence that like the Taliban already control much of Afghanistan despite US presence there so i think it's important that we note that but please yeah they 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 control more now than they did when we initially invaded absolutely so after 20 years you know clearly it hasn't worked right. the goal of reducing their presence hasn't worked but he's basically asked this question by by this reporter, like, hey, do you, you know, do you think you're responsible or the U.S. is responsible if that happens? And he gives a pretty like stern answer where he he almost looks pissed, where he's like, no, absolutely not. Um, hmm. We don't bear any responsibility. And he basically goes on to talk about like, you know, look, we've been here for 20 years. You know, what happens with Afghanistan is you know, essentially up to the people of Afghanistan. And I don't know, I, I have this weird, I, like I said earlier, like, I think we're responsible for what we, we do. 
Mm-hmm. And we have played a big part in destabilizing not only Afghanistan, but the rest of the Middle East. Absolutely. So on the one hand, I, I do think like we're responsible for fixing that or rebuilding it. But at the same time, like that's never really the goal for the U.S. Like we mm-hmm. say it is, but that's not the goal for like the, the goal for Afghanistan is is opium wealth. It's geopolitical control. The goal for Iraq was, you know, oil and having control over their oil reserves. So like that's never the stated goal. And I'm honestly a little surprised that Biden is actually going forward with this withdrawal because of the way that he's acting like towards Cuba, because of the way that he's acted towards Iran, how he hasn't gotten back into the Iran deal yet, despite saying that he wanted to on the campaign trail. So I don't know. I mean, I give him credit for this, but it's like, okay, Joe, like, can we maybe make this, you know, a more common tendency? Right. Right. (laughs) It's just, it's, it's, it's weird. It's such a weird dichotomy that's happening. Yeah. I would hope that this type of like isolationist mentality could carry over into other aspects of our foreign policy. Like for him to have such a, like, you know, uh, as you're saying, like a stern, like almost to throw his hands up and be like, no, that's not our responsibility. Like that is to me very surprising because that again has been like the American theme. And I'll, I'll again say like back to the sixties of like, we have to be interventionists. It's, you know, our job to prevent, you know, communism from spreading or, you know, whatever excuse they want to slap on it. Um, But of course, like you're saying, it's about a lot of the time, it's about oil, it's about having um, control over governments, having control over people in these regions. And so for Joe to just go as far as to say, no, we won't take responsibility. Where is that attitude when it comes to Cuba? You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. But I don't know. I mean, maybe because Afghanistan is one of those wars where it's like, I mean, it's even less popular now with the public than than Vietnam was at the height of its unpopularity. So maybe that's them recognizing, okay, we've been here for 20 years. The nickname for Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Wow. Every every country that goes there, they 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 usually stay and they, you know, for a prolonged period of time. And then they they either leave or like like the Soviets, they were there. And mm-hmm. they just depleted so many of their resources that, you know, they couldn't even sustain um, their system in their own country. And they eventually collapsed a few years later. So I don't know, maybe part of this is them seeing the writing on the wall. But yeah, it, it would be nice to see this. And I wouldn't even call it isolationism. Mm-hmm. I would call it anti-interventionism because mm. I feel like isolationism is usually a term used by it's usually used by like pro intervention people and their thinking is like, Oh, you're just, you're an isolationist. You want to, you don't want to cooperate or, you know, be on even good terms with Uh, other countries. They use it as like a, they, yeah, they use it as a pejorative and it's, it's like a backhanded way of, you know, saying, Oh no, we can't, we can't leave these areas. What are you, what, what are you an isolationist? Yeah. So I, I would say, but, but I know what you meant. I, I would just say anti-interventionist. 
Because, yeah, I do think if, if we're going to have a foreign policy, it should be a foreign policy that's actually built on, oh, I'm forgetting the term you said earlier, mutual mutual aid, mutual aid, mutual aid. Yeah. Um, helping those countries rebuild their economies, um, being on good terms with with each other. And you like even if you're someone who, you know, looks at this from a purely like U.S. self-interest perspective, mm-hmm. like take Iran, for example. Um, one of the, one of the other big accomplishments I think of the Obama administration was the Iran deal where we basically said, Hey, um, we will lift some of the sanctions against you if you agree not to make a nuke. Um, so they agreed the international atomic energy agency that the IAEA verified over a dozen times that they were abiding by the deal. They weren't making a nuke. Right. And we lifted some of the sanctions and helped them out economically. So it, it helped to both parties. They It helped out their economy. We got the assurance that they weren't making a nuke. And then Trump came in and because it was Obama's deal, ripped it up, which is hilarious because mm-hmm. he was trying to get the same deal with North Korea, <laughs> which he never got. Yeah. But he ripped that up. It pissed the Iranians off. And they just elected recently um, a hardliner who's like, super fundamentalist islam super against the u.s doesn't want to work with us at all probably wants a nuke (laughs) yeah yeah and they are and that's exactly what they're doing now that we've pulled out of the deal we strapped new sanctions on them like i said earlier on food and medicine which the international criminal court said that's legal you can't do that so we pulled out of the court and said no we're going to do it anyway um now they're enriching uranium and again like the discourse you hear from the U.S., from Western media's, can you believe what we are seeing in Iran? <laughs> why, why, are, right. why, why is Iran being so provocative? Do you know that Iranian gunboats are being provocative towards U.S. ships mm-hmm. in the? Um, why are U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf? Right, in the like, first place. like that's the thing. But yeah, like the way they talk about it, it'd be like it'd be like if Iran, if Iranian ships were in the Gulf of Mexico, like off the coast of Florida, and u.s ships were there as well and the discourse you know by iranian media was oh these these u.s ships in the gulf of mexico are being very provocative towards our iranian ships it's like why are iranian ships there right so and what's interesting though yeah as a political scientist it makes me think like well i mean as myself i am against nuclear weapons i think that the creation of you know, nuclear bombs was like probably one of the biggest mistakes that humanity has ever made. But that being said, like there's empirical evidence that supports the idea that the more countries that have them, um, what ends up happening is you witness a phenomenon, mutually assured destruction. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of this idea where like, well, we have a bomb and you have a bomb. So if you don't use yours, we won't use ours. And it actually, like, makes us somewhat safer to have that kind of, like, game theory going on. But um, at the same time, you also have, like, more bombs in the world. So what do we do with that? What if you do get a loose cannon like Trump or somebody else who does press the button and then they press the button? And now, now that we've got all these bombs, everyone's just dead. Yeah, and we've got World so, War Three or worse. Yeah, I we thought the pandemic was a nat or a international disaster. Like, wait until we start 
chucking bombs at each other. Yeah, wait until we have a nuclear fallout. That's yeah. It's it's crazy too because I don't think anyone really understands like the full scale of what that would be like. Yeah, like we have enough nukes to end life on Earth if we really wanted to. Which and is really disturbing. <laughs> yeah, if I like may I, say. Yeah, like, and and I get the mutually assured destruction point, but that's. I don't think I want humans to have that ability. Like there really needs to be some effort to denuclearize. Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that I would like to see in terms of policy proposals is like an international body. Obviously the UN isn't very effective. Um, I don't know if like this route, it would be best to strengthen the UN or maybe create like a new international body, but like some type of like multinational organization that was focused on peace because if we could have some type of like agreement between everyone to say oh right we're all going to go through nuclear disarmament i think that that in a sense would create you know mutually assured like peace <laughs> Restru- and, you know, yeah mutually yeah. assured restructuring or right exactly and not to sound like a complete idealist because of course like you know, you would have to have in order for that to work, you would have to have every single country on board. And I realize that that's, you know, quite a well, every country that has nukes. Right. Absolutely. Because, you know, what you risk when you go into that is some, you know, big britches nation like the U.S. <laughs> I don't know why I picked uh, that set of adjectives, but, um, you know, the U.S. coming in and saying, well, then this is the perfect opportunity for us to be the only one with nukes. And um, that's definitely yeah. like a situation that we wouldn't want. Or I mean, not we as an American, because there are a lot of people that'd be like, yeah, that's perfect. World police. But I think like we as advocates for peace would want to avoid there being just one country with nukes. Yeah. Speaking of the UN, 184 of the nations, which I think is all of them except the US and Israel, mm. voted on the US like saying that the U.S. should lift its sanctions and embargo against Cuba. Mm -hmm. Um, Only countries that voted against that resolution were um, the U.S. and and Israel. Wow. So, yeah, that 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 is another example of uh, just the arrogance of U.S. empire. And also this idea that like, oh, we're worried about the rest of the country or the rest of the world using nukes when we're the only country that's actually used nukes in war against civilians. It's like, and it's interesting because that's not the, at least I didn't see that headline. You know, I see the ones that I have seen are like, you know, Cuba rebelling against communism and things of that nature. You know, you don't see like the more, you don't see stuff that's anti-U.S. in general. So you don't see, you know, the fact that other nations also want us to lift these embargoes. It's not just your like friendly neighborhood lefties yeah and i and i would say like like there's been a there was a statement by the um mexican president on this i believe mexican president andre manuel lopez obrador gave cuba backing on monday saying the which is today saying the u.s economic embargo on the island should uh, be ended to help its people the truth is that if one wanted to help Cuba, the first thing that should be done is suspend the blockade of Cuba as the majority of countries in the world are asking. 
So, you know, this just goes back to what I said earlier. Like, if you want to criticize, you know, the Cuban regime, fine, you know, by all means, but you have no place to criticize them until you lift these sanctions and the embargo. Because again, you're responsible for what you do. So stop what you're doing and then uh, criticize the um, Cuban regime. So this is a, qu- a tweet by um, Andre Demise. Um, Cuban Hades been in the streets protesting their U.S.-backed dictatorship and ruling class for three years, and nobody gave a shit. But let a couple hundred Cubans um, out with uh, place cards, and it's the Bay of fucking tweets. Western lips at the most gullible uh, people God ever put on the earth. <laughs> so it's basically showing how, like, like yeah, there are... Um, there are protests that have been happening in Haiti. They've been happening in Colombia. They've been happening in Chile. Um, you haven't heard about those, though. You just hear about the one where, you know, the people are protesting in the government in that country. It's not backed by the United States. And there's another tweet, too, by um, the Cavernacle, which basically shows what this is all about. What's happening in Cuba is always the goal of U.S. sanctions. They want to create a situation so desperate that the populace will try to get rid of the regime the U.S. doesn't like and make way for a U.S. puppet government. They don't actually care about human life. All right. So them, so basically saying they're like, hey, this is the idea, like starve this country from within so that there's all this resentment and all this buildup and, you know, all, all of these protests so that you can say to, to your people in the U.S., like, hey, this is, you know, we we need to do something with Cuba. You know, do we do regime change? Do we do more sanctions? Do we do something else? So trying to create a situation that's so volatile that you have to do regime change. Um, And it's the same thing we've been doing that we've been, well, at least under Trump, we were doing with Iran. Like, let's try to make this situation so volatile that we make Iran crack. And when they do say, oh, this is the guys we need to do to, to, or this is the guys we need to go in and do regime change. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I would just say, you know, if you're if you're if you're looking at this, because I mean, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter, like Ben Shapiro sarcastically like tweeted something in Spanish in solidarity with the Cuban people. And it's just like, oh, my God. But there's just there's a lot of. Yeah, he's uh, (laughs) we do a whole episode on him. (laughs) Um, There's just a lot of BS out there. So I would just say to anyone looking at this, like, try to look at this objectively as possible and try to consider the historical context, the context that's happening now with the pandemic and the context of when there's 240 sanctions placed um, against your country, you know, like how would the U S respond to that? Yeah. All right. And with that, I guess there's nothing left.